0: Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do.
0: Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone. And it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't, shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that, that is the thing that,
1: that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias.
0: This is Jody Martel. This
1: is Chi-Yun.
0: This is Dick Vitale, and you listen to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the american dream here's part two of my interview with charles bolden a decade after you watched man land on the moon you applied to the space
1: program why it would have never happened had it not been for another south carolinian for ron mcnair ron and Ron and I had uh, had become friends when I got into the office. I didn't know him before. He and I had grown up about 42 miles from each other. His mom was a school teacher like mine. And um, but but Ron had grown up in Lake City, South Carolina, a, a, a town, a town that was m- minuscule, to be quite honest. And so he went to a segregated high school just like I had. He went to Carver High School and and um, But Ron, unlike me, I never dreamed of being an astronaut because I just, there were no black astronauts, just to put it simply. There were none that looked like me. Every every astronaut was white, an engineer, a test pilot, and I was none of those. And so I just never dreamed of being an astronaut. Ron was quite different. Um, You know, When you talk to Ron's family, they'll tell you that that's all Ron ever talked about. Ron was gonna be an astronaut as long as they, as long as he had been on this planet. That was just, he was he was determined to do that. And, um, you know, he had gone, he had taught himself calculus and, and physics. He had actually gone to the public library in Lake City and, and had attempted to check out two books, one for physics and one for calculus. And the librarian told him not only could he not check out the books, but he had to leave. He couldn't be in the library. And he sat down and um, and, and he refused to leave. And the policeman, I, I mean, the librarian called the police, the police chief came and Lake City is so small that he knew Ron and he knew Ron's mother. And when he had exhausted all of his efforts to get Ron to leave, he called over to the school and, and asked to speak to Ron's mother and asked her to come over and, and convince Ron to leave the library. Otherwise, he was going to have to arrest him. And, um, and Ron's mother rushed over and she sat down and talked to Ron and Ron said, I'm not leaving, you know, until I, until I get the books because I, I need to know calculus and physics if I'm going to become an astronaut. And uh, his mother couldn't convince him to leave. And finally, something hit, the, <laughs> something struck the police chief. He said, I got it. And he walked over to the librarian and he said, I tell you what I want to do. I will check out the books and I will bring them back to you. And that's all you need to know. And so he checked out the two books. He gave them to Mrs. McNair and Ron. He said, "Look, you know, Ron, you take it and you you study these books and you bring them back to me when you're finished." And and that's that was the story. And um, I met him when I was a test pilot. He had um, he and his classmates were they were in the middle of their what they call candidacy, but but a number of them were Navy and Marine Corps pilots who had gone through the Navy's test pilot school. And and so they came back for a reunion one one June weekend. And um, Ron, I saw him get out of the back of this shiny white T-38 supersonic jet. And while I knew there were three blacks uh, in that class, I never expected that I would see one of them get out of a NASA T-38. And I was standing there on the flight line when they came um, and I was just blown away. And I went over and introduced myself to him and told him I was also from South Carolina. And uh, for the whole weekend, we just we just talked and he told me what it was like. And and um, and it sounded intriguing, but it did not change my mind about wanting to be an astronaut. But uh, when I went out on Sunday afternoon to say bye, what well, say farewell and uh, watch him, you know, get back in the back seat of his airplane and leave, he said, hey, uh, are you going to apply for the program? And and I looked at him strange and I said, not on your life. And he looked at me equally as strange and he said, okay, why not? And I said, they'll never pick me. And and he took a look at me of an incredulity and he said, you know, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. He said, how do you know if you don't ask? And I could see, I could hear and see my mother, <laughs> you know, uh, she would have said, that is the, she would have probably told me, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard, Where whereby, what have I taught you? Study hard, work hard, never be afraid of failure. And here you are saying nobody's gonna pick you. And so Ron got in his airplane, flew back to Houston. And I went home and I told my wife, I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I stand not a snowball's chance in hell, but, but I'm gonna apply for the space program. And so I, I, got, you know, I got my pen and paper out and I started filling out my application and um, in the process lost my dad. He, he died when I was just about to turn my paper in and i had to go i actually had to go to south carolina for the funeral and and my boss at the test center um, another marine a major bill cadger uh, said don't worry about it you know i'll fill out the rest of it we'll get it in for you on time because it was due that weekend and so so my boss completed my application and got it delivered to nasa and i buried my dad and came back and and a little bit later found out that that i was among the 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 finalist that they wanted to talk to um, to consider for, for the 1980 class and got an opportunity to go down to Houston and interview for a week. And I left, you know, when I left Pax River, I told my wife, I said, you know, I don't stand a snowball's chance in hell, but I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to enjoy myself when I go down here. I'm going to meet every astronaut I can and I'm going I'm to go everywhere they let me go. But I, when I come back, you know, I'll, we can settle down and talk about what we want to do. And, and I did. I went down. I had a, just a tremendous time that week, got, got through all the physicals and the psychological evaluations, the meetings with the psychiatrist and and even got through the astronaut interview board, which everybody said was the toughest part. And I came back home and I told my wife, I said, you know, that was absolutely phenomenal. I said, but I don't have a snowball's chance in hell of being selected because the 20 people who we interviewed with the, the, the other 19 people we interviewed in my 20 person group. I mean, the the civilians had degrees all up and down their arms and the military guys were all test pilots like me. But but most of them were fighter pilots that that, you know, just were very talkative about what they did. And I was not that talkative, but but I figured I would held my own, but I still didn't think I'd be selected. And that was like February and of 1980 and months passed, And then the week of my wife's birthday, the week of May 31st, I got a phone call. And um, it was from a gentleman by the name of George Abbey, who was the director of flight crew operations. And I had been told before I left Houston that, okay, you won't hear from us for a while, but when you do, if the call comes from George Abbey, that's a good sign. If it's from anybody other than George Abbey, you didn't make it. And uh, so I was on my way out to fly a test flight in, a, in an A7. and. Um, uh, and it, it was the test was a, an, what we call an accelerated service test where I was going to go out and just jam the throttle from idle to, to max until the engine quit. Hopefully the engine would not quit. But that was the test was a was on. It was a stress test on the engine. And I was going to do that for an hour. And uh, so I, I had my gear on and I was walking out. And the phone rang and and the duty officer yelled. He said, hey, Charlie, there's a call for you from Houston. You want to take it? And I started to turn around and say, no, just get the, take the message and I'll call when I come back. And for some reason, I said, no, I'll take it. And I walked back over to the duty desk and and I said, hello. And, and he said, hey, this is George Abbey. And I went, uh-oh. And um, he said, do you still want to be an astronaut? And, and I said, you bet I do, sir. He, he said, well, you've been selected in this class. And I just lost it. And I said, hey, you know, when do I need to be there? How, how soon? He said, now just calm down. He said, we haven't even, we've got to notify everybody. We've got to get everything together. So it's probably going to be a couple of days before you can even share this with anybody other than your wife. Don't tell anybody, just go about your normal routine and uh, we'll send you a note that says, we're getting ready to put out a press release and then you can share it. And so uh, I hung up and I was, I, I think I was walking on a cloud and I walked out to my airplane to go do this accelerated service test where my one engine on the airplane might quit and I might have to jump out and parachute back to earth. But I was just, I was so elated that it, I didn't even think about it. And I went out and flew a great hop, had a good time, came back in, went home, told my wife about everything. And a, several days later that we got word that, okay, you can, you can now tell people. And, uh, and we headed off to Houston uh, that was May, and we headed off to Houston to be there the 1st of July and, and started what turned out to be 14 years of just incredible fun and excitement and adventure in the astronaut office.
0: You lost your father during that period. Do you ever think about him and how your selection would have made him feel?
1: Oh, all the time. All the time, because he had died. You know, he had seen me graduate from test pilot school, so he knew I was a test pilot. We had never talked about um, in fact, I, uh, I got to think about it. After I had the conversation with Ron, and I decided I was going to apply for the space program, I just started doing it. And um, and I don't think I ever told my mom and dad that I was that I was preparing an application. So I think he died perfectly happy that his son had done all that he had done. I think he'd have been uh, over the moon, so to speak. He. He was, um, he was always so proud of everything my brother and I did. You know, my mom, my mom just went batty. Um, she, was, she was torn. I mean, she was incredibly proud, but scared to death. And um, um, she made every launch that I, you know, of my four launches. She drove from Columbia down to the Cape and uh, several times turned around and went back home overnight and came back if we were gonna be more than a, you know, than a day delay. And she made my two landings at Kennedy. She was there. So she was there for me, leaving the planet and coming back when she could. My dad would have, he'd have been unbelievably happy. How tough was it becoming an astronaut? Yeah, you know, the, to be quite honest, it, the training itself wasn't tough except for trying to learn all the systems on the shuttle. It was, it, for me personally, it was overwhelming and it brought me it brought me to my knees. And when I finally got a, I didn't realize how difficult it was until I was assigned to, to be a crew member on my first flight. I was I was assigned to be the pilot, which is like the co-pilot in, in, in normal terms. And the co-pilot is responsible for all but um, the data processing system and the environmental control and life support system on the orbiter. So every other system on the orbiter. The the pilot is responsible for, and um, that was just overwhelming. And the one thing that gave me the the most trouble was what I had studied in college. It was electrical. I had wanted to be an electrical engineer, and I ended up getting a degree in electrical science. But I had struggled through it, and um, and when I got into the astronaut office and and found out you know what my duties were, the electrical system in the shuttle was incredibly complex. It was. It was quadruply redundant, not triply redundant like everything else, but it it was just one system on top of another system on top of another system, and training was always disaster training. It was always see how many the training team always wanted to see how many failures they could throw at you and 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 have you survive or figure out a way to survive it. They never they never did anything that would kill you, that you know that that if you if you really were thorough and thought it all through, you could survive it. They didn't give you any, any, any death uh, scenarios, but they gave you near death scenarios. And, and a lot of them had to do with the electrical system because it was a fly-by-wire spacecraft, which meant there were no pulleys and, and, and levers and chains and cables and stuff like that. It was all by electronic communication with little hydraulic actuators in the wing and in the tail. And um, so I was responsible for making sure all that stuff worked all the time. And about, I think we were as close as six months to the flight. I was still overwhelmed. And I remember going into to Hoot Gibson, who was my commander. And I said, Hoot, I, I don't think I'm gonna learn all this stuff. I said, I am just, this is overwhelming. And, and he just kinda, he smiled and he, and he sat back and he said, hey, you know, just be patient like my mom. Uh, it will come soon, very soon. He said, "We've all been there. I I know exactly how you feel because I was the same way. I was overwhelmed." He said, "But just hang in there and keep working on it, and and it'll all come to you." And he was absolutely right. We, you know, within a week or two, I'm not sure what was the trigger, but all of a sudden I started putting things together, and and what things that seemed impossible to me in the before that. Um, all of a sudden became pretty intuitive. And, and I, I fully understood the system and everything. And, um, and the rest of the training went very well. Um, our first flight, it took us um, five, going to the vehicle five times before we finally left the planet. So that was frustrating. But um, uh, it was well worth it. And, and, and I did okay. Put me inside the shuttle for
0: launch. You're strapped in. You feel that enormous thrust. You're heading for an experience that very few humans have ever enjoyed. How does that feel?
1: Over four flights, it never changed. You know, I knew more and more about what to expect each time I went out. But the sensation, once the, when the main engine's ignited and then seven seconds later, the solid rocket booster's ignited and you lift it off, it was always new, each, each time I did that was always like I had never done it before except that I knew what was gonna happen. But the thrill, the excitement, the adrenaline rush, the vibration of the vehicle, all that stuff, that never changed. It was always there, it was always incredible each time. And then the other thing that never changed was just just the, the unbelievable change in your perspective of our planet when you got to orbit and you had an opportunity to look out the window and see this incredible planet on which we live in in all of its magnificence. And so I usually uh, try to tell kids to imagine two senses. One is the sense of feel, and the other one is the sense of sight. And and the sense of sight, um, it is is um, uh, hyper-activated when you're in space looking out the window at our planet um, we don't have a camera today yet that can capture what the human eye sees what what God's camera captures That goes into your brain it we've got some absolutely incredible cameras a Nikon Hasselblad uh, the IMAX is probably one of the best in terms of giving you a, a view like you're looking through the human eye But it still it doesn't get it um, the colors um, the the depth perception that you get even from that far out in space. Um, sometimes it feels like you could reach out and touch the mountaintops of some of the highest mountains, uh, although you're hundreds of miles above them. Um, the Looking at the atmosphere, it, the thin blue line that, that encircles our planet as you look across it and realizing that, man, if that goes away, we're dead. That That little thin blue line is the only thing that keeps us alive because that's where the little bit of oxygen on the planet is housed that keeps us alive. And, and looking at the oceans and or the ocean, because we actually live on one ocean. Earth is a, is a water planet, and it has these bodies of land, some call continents, some just call islands and other things that stick up in this big ocean on which we float. And uh, And that's absolutely incredible. So that's the sense of sight. And then the sense of feel, because you go through... Um, incredible extremes of feel from the moment you strap into the vehicle and you're just laying there in quiescence for a couple of hours waiting to launch and then when um, you get inside fight five, five minutes to launch and you start activating switches and and bringing the shuttle more to life than it has been when you got in it um, and then when as the as the pilot when I started the the auxiliary power units at five minutes prior to launch, I mean, these are three units that are all the way back, almost 200 feet away from you, way down in the back of the vehicle at the bottom of the stack as you're, mount, as you're sitting there on the launch pad vertically. And you light those three things and, and, it, and it makes the vehicle vibrate a little bit because everything vibrates through the structure. And um, it just starts to hum a little bit. And then when the three main engines light um, they're they're off center so they're not pointing straight to the ground they're pointed kind of uh, up in order to steer you properly away from the tower when you launch and it causes the vehicle to tip over to feel like it's getting ready to tip over and so the nose goes down about seven feet or so and then it it gets caught the vehicle gets caught by the eight bolts that are holding you up that are that are holding the solid rocket boosters on the pad that that's the only thing keeping this this seven million, this four million pound vehicle standing upright. And you, you tip over a little bit and then the, the bolts catch and you pop back. We call it the twang. And the timing is such that it takes about seven seconds to go down and back up. And that's just long enough for the computers to run through their, their sequence checks and everything to make sure everything's all right and send the signals to the compute to themselves to say, okay, it's all right to ignite the solid rocket boosters. And when you get straight up, <clears throat> you you feel and hear this explosion and it's the two solid rocket boosters igniting and the vehicle just starts to vibrate in a way that you've never felt before this the simulators are awesome but they can't simulate or they don't simulate the incredible vibration that you get when the solids ignite and you feel yourself sink back into your seat ever so slightly because you're lifting off and it's about a g and a half it's it's not a lot. People think your, you know, your skin's coming back on your face, but it's about one and a half times the force of gravity. So it's a little bit less than you in a car with your teenage son or daughter, who floors the accelerator and throws you back in your seat, um, and you can feel the vehicle twist around as it, as it rolls to orient itself to go uh, eastbound into orbit, and and then you're off to the races and. Two minutes later, the solids have all burned out and they separate and it gets really smooth. So now you're in the second phase of flight that, that feels totally different from the first two minutes. You think you're in a the, the world's greatest luxury automobile on the world's greatest superhighway. Um, and that lasts for another six and a half minutes until it's time for the engines to cut off. But, but about 45 seconds before that's over, you can feel the pressure on your chest bill because the vehicle's starting to accelerate again as it gets lighter and lighter, but you've still got seven million pounds, or not seven, but you got a million and a half pounds of thrust in the three main engines that are still pushing you towards space. So you got a 200,000 pound vehicle being pushed by a million and a half pounds of thrust, and, and it gets up to three Gs across your chest um, until the main engine's cut off. And, and all of a sudden now, instead of being pushed back in your seat, you pop up against the seats because you're you're in microgravity or zero G and gravity has been overcome by centrifugal force. It, you're still in a gravity environment, but this centrifugal force is trying to pull you away from Earth and gravity is trying to hold you and you're in the middle and it gives you the sensation of floating. Uh, so, I mean, that's why I say the sense of feel just it's one thing after another for the for the eight and a half minutes to get into space.
0: You're on this thrill ride but you have a very serious job to do. Was it difficult the first time to avoid getting distracted by the experience?
1: You've trained for for upwards of 2 years depending on the complexity of your flight and and you've pretty much ingrained it's pretty much ingrained in you that in spite of everything going on around you like you said you've got a job to do and every crew member has certain things that they've gotta get done in order for us to get safely on orbit. Because once the main engine's cut off, uh, you're just halfway there. you still gotta get into a circular orbit, and that means in most cases, you've got another big uh, a burn. You've gotta ignite two big engines on the back of the shuttle to get you into a circular orbit. When you get down to the lowest point in your ar- orbit, um, uh, you ignite the engines right at that low point and it pushes your orbit out to um, to to take you into a circular orbit, which is where your perigee is at the time the highest point of orbit so you you've got you've got another forty five minutes to wait before you can relax because you're not you 're not really in the proper orbit yet so you' got a lot lot more work to do Did you have a hard time sleeping when it was time to sleep no i didn 't at all you um Sleeping is really easy. I sleep anywhere, anyway, um, and I can and I can literally sleep anywhere. Uh, in my case, because I, I didn't want to miss anything. Um, and when you launch, um, if you launch in the daytime, the places on Earth that are that are in sunlight when you launch, half of the time um, are going to be in darkness. Half of your you know of your day. So because of the way the the shuttle precesses. Uh, westward around the equator, um, things that are in daylight when you launch uh, about halfway through each day, they turn out to be in, in darkness. And so, if you want to see, like, if if we launch in daylight out of Kennedy Space Center and I want to see Vietnam in the daylight, I've got to wait until till it becomes daylight in in, in that hemisphere, and that takes um, the better part of about twelve hours or so for the for Earth to. Move around on its axis, and and this, you know, and move and push the sun around such that it's shining on that part of the world. So I slept. I took my sleep restraint, which is like a lightweight sleeping bag, and I always tied one end of it to the foot to the um, to my rudder pedals down on the up on the flight deck, and I just floated into my sleep restraint and floated over my seat on the flight deck with several cameras that I wanted to use at night, uh, velcroed to the windowsill so that I could wake up and take pictures of things that, that I wanted to see while I was doing the sleep period.
0: Jim Lovell talks about the feeling he had on Apollo 8 as one of the first three humans with that view, looking back at the Earth from the moon and feeling incredibly small and insignificant. How did space affect
1: your perspective? Oh, yeah. yeah you know, the, the thing is, and you're, you're pretty well prepared for it because you've talked to people like Jim Lovell, you've talked to the Apollo astronauts who pointed out to you that you want to feel insignificant, go, go uh, a quarter of a million miles away from Earth and look back at the little dot, You know that little blue marble, you will really feel insignificant. So, so our, I don't know that there is, a, there is a higher feeling of insignificance than another, but, but when you look back at the planet and you realize that you don't see any buildings um, you don't see streets in the daytime you can see you can see long linear features like roads and bridges and rivers and all that stuff you can see the for if it's a big enough boat you can make out uh, um, the wake of a ship or you can see contrails from airplanes but but you don't see people you don't see airplanes you don't see boats without a set of binoculars or something so you you look back and you say man I, I wonder if humans are on that Ball down there. You know, I don't other than the fact that you just left it, you don't have any evidence that humans occupy that planet. You're
0: listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What surprised you about
1: space? Mmm. The beauty and grandeur of our planet shocked me. I mean, I wasn't ready for that. Um, It's it's overstated by astronauts, but the lack of borders and boundaries and stuff, I I knew better. But I was still shocked by the fact that that, um, there are no distinctions between countries on this planet, Um, no physical distinctions anyway. those things kind of really, they were, they were eye-openers for me, to be quite honest. You made four flights,
0: two as commander. Probably your most memorable mission was to launch the, the Hubble telescope. What do you remember about that experience?
1: Hubble was pretty spectacular because we won. And, and it's interesting because one of the things that, uh, that people are talking about, the inspiration for crew right now is the fact that they are flying higher than humans have ever flown before, except those that went to the moon. And that's sort of inaccurate because we, we actually went to, to um, we were at 600, I think when we, when we initially got to orbit, we were like at 615 kilometers and they're at 575 or something like that. But I think what they're, what they're basing the statement on is the fact that they're above Hubble today, where you know, Hubble's orbit has degraded over 30 years. And so it, it came down from 400 nautical miles to, to 300 and some odd nautical miles. And, and it's actually had to be reboosted each of, of the servicing missions because it, the orbits decay the longer you stay up there. But Hubble was impressive from the view, the, stand, the standpoint of just the incredible beauty of the planet from, from that altitude. I mean, you see almost three quarters of the planet. Not, you still can't see the whole ball uh, even from that altitude but you see a major portion of it, and and it is just breathtaking, and um, even more so than seeing it from a lower altitude up closer. And then you know what we went through to get to get Hubble deployed. All the, it nothing went right on the first day, and so we had to overcome all kinds of difficulty. It, it didn't come out of the payload bay the way we had trained. It, it moved around. it, it didn't just. Comes lift straight out the way it was supposed to. Um, and then we had trouble with one of the solar arrays. And uh, when we finally got it deployed and took a deep breath, we got back only to find out about a week later that we had a, a problem with the, with the mirror. The several things our crew had to do was, Steve Hawley was, the, was, was op- operating the remote manipulator system and I was his backup. So uh, when we got ready to lift it out of the payload bay, it was supposed to be a matter of just him pulling back on a con- on a longitudinal controller and having it having the arm lifted straight out of the payload bay. But as he did that, we noticed that it started twisting and turning, and um, so evidently the twenty-five thousand pound weight of Hubble was a little bit more than the than the control laws on the arm had been programmed to handle. So, so what we ended up having to do was go to what what was called single joint operations where. Steve had to select a single joint in the arm. And it's like a human arm. So it had a wrist joint, a shoulder joint, an elbow joint. And he had to select joint by joint, straighten the, the telescope out first to get it straight in the payload bay the way it, it had started. And then gradually lift it out inch by inch, joint by joint, uh, you know, until it was clear of the of the shuttle payload bay. So that that probably took us an hour and that should have been like a 10 or a 15 minute evolution so so we were behind we were well behind our timeline before we even got it out and and to complicate things because Hubble was so dainty um, we did not want jets to be firing on the orbiter so we we went into a, a condition called free drift we turned all the essentially you turn all the jets off on the on the shuttle, and you just let it keep its attitude as best it can. You don't worry about it. Um, but but you've got a, a deploy attitude. It, the, the vehicle has to be on a certain attitude in order to, to release the Hubble Space Telescope. So, but we weren't that far out when we finally got it up to the deploy position. But then we had to we had to open up the telescope, we had to deploy its antenna. Uh, there were two of them, and they came down one at a time. That worked perfectly. We had two sets of solar arrays. The first set came and rolled out perfectly. The second set, we put, it, put the arm down and started rolling it out and it got about 16 inches out and quit. I mean, it just quit, it was jammed. And um, so that just, that caused a tizzy because nobody, people from British aerospace who had built it, Lockheed, who had worked on Hubble and um, people in the Mission Control Center, all of us on board none of us had an idea except one person. It was Bruce McCandless who was on my crew. Everybody else was talking about it being jammed. And, and early that day, Bruce said, you know, I, I don't think it's jammed. I think it's the tension monitoring module. And all of all the, the other four of us on the crew, I mean, all together looked at Bruce and said, what the hell is a tension monitoring module? And Bruce explained to us that Hubble had been designed, the solar arrays had been designed with the software Package that was to protect the solar arrays from ripping themselves to shreds if if they were if they became uh, jammed or or if there was any resistance to their smooth rollout and uh, and so Bruce said I just think it's the tension monitoring module and and when they turn that off everything will work right but what we worked on for the next few hours was all kinds of ways to get it to roll out and we had actually decided okay. We're gonna put Bruce and Kathy, who are our spacewalk crew members, we're gonna put them out in the payload bay and we're gonna let them manually roll this thing out. When we were trained for that, we had gone over to England and, and all of us had had an opportunity to take the wrench and and roll it out and all that, so we knew it would work. But but it meant you were gonna degrade the, the the autonomous modes of the telescope and we really didn't wanna do that. But we we put Bruce and Kathy in the airlock and started depressurizing the airlock to, to let them go do a spacewalk to fix it when, um, about we were probably five minutes from from going to to vacuum on the on the airlock and telling them to open the door and go outside when the ground called, "Hey wait, ho stop, stop and so we stopped depressurization and and uh and the ground said, "Hey we've got a young engineer down here out at at uh, Goddard who thinks that it's the tension monitoring module and and we all we all looked at each other and went, "Oh yeah, it's the tension monitoring module. We thought about that." Up of course it was. You know, like we were trying to wait until you all figured that out down there. And so they said, "Here's what. Here's the plan. Um, we want you to uh, try to get back in the deploy attitude as quickly as you can. And we realize we're not supposed to be firing jets, but but we're in extremists because we've been hours now out of attitude, and the solar arrays have not been getting any power." Uh, generation to the batteries, and the batteries could run out any moment, and if that happens, the telescope's going to freeze and we'll lose it. So it was a matter of life and death for the telescope. So they said, before we do anything else, we want you to fly the, t- the, the, the spacecraft back to the deploy attitude, which would put sunlight on the the deployed solar arrays and, and at least put some life back into the telescope. So Lauren and I did that, and uh, they said, okay, now we're going to no-op the the tension monitoring module. And as soon as that happens, you should see the solar arrays start to move. And they went three, two, one, mark. And within seconds, the solar array started to move out and, and it fully deployed and we went hallelujah. And they said, okay, Steve, it's time for you to go back to work. Uh, go ahead and release it. Verify that you're in the appropriate attitude and and uh, and release Hubble. And so Steve Hawley grabbed the controls and. Pull the trigger that that released the the. There was a set of three um, wires that actually gripped um, a, a a little rod sticking out from the back of the telescope that allowed us to hold it. It it was the grapple. It was called a grapple fixture, and so he took the the wires and opened them up such that there was no nothing holding on to the grapple fixture anymore, and he physically backed the the end effector, the little tin can looked like that that had the wires and it backed it off the telescope such that it was free floating. And then Lauren uh, flew the shuttle, backed the shuttle away from from Hubble and we watched it go off and on its own. And um, the next day, the ground sent a signal to open the aperture door and let light in. And they did their checkouts and told us, okay, everything's good, you guys can come home. So we came back to Earth the you know a couple of days later, uh, as happy as we could be, only to find about a week later when they were supposed to just uh, brag about first light, they got the first image back and it was incredible because this, they had selected a star that astronomers had been studying for probably a hundred years or more, and and it turned out not to be a star but a, uh, a a what they call a bi a binary star system. It was actually two stars that were close enough together that with even the best telescopes, they looked like one star, but Hubble was so good that Hubble distinctly show, showed it as two different stars. The problem was both stars were kind of blurry and that was not good. And so that was the beginning of the almost three-year saga of um, finding a way to go rescue Hubble. And, um, and we were able to do it. And the Hubble servicing mission, the first Hubble servicing mission was flown, trained, and executed, and they put Hubble back out and went back four more times and left it in better shape than it was when it was designed. So it, today it's a better telescope than it was coming off the drawing board. Now tell the truth: what was more memorable? Space or the birth of your children? Yeah, there's no comparison, especially when you miss one. Like, like I missed the birth of my daughter, uh, and my wife says I did it on purpose. She was a C-section because our son had been delivered by emergency C-section. And so we knew the date and time of my daughter's delivery. We were out in Southern California and I had a, we had an airplane in the squadron that needed a test flight to get it back up so we could use it in the schedule for that day. And uh, so I volunteered to fly the test flight and I, I drove down to Orange County and, and uh, suited up, went out and flew my test flight. And when I got back to the hospital, Long Beach Naval Hospital where our daughter was born, she was laying up on my wife's chest, um, this beaming baby, and I had missed it missed her birth by about an hour because I was late. My wife never forgave me for that, and um but she knew I wasn't going to be in the room anyway because i i i i could, I hated the sight of blood and stuff, and I didn't want to be around anyway so but i she would have liked to have seen me when she was rolled out of the delivery room. I wasn't there did going into space change your faith? Um, I, I don't think it changed my faith. It strengthened it. Um, when I left the planet the very first time, I was a practicing Christian, uh, um, a, a person of faith. I wouldn't say overwhelmingly good at it, but, um, but I am a believer, and I am an Episcopalian by, by trade, and, uh, and the eternal optimist, one of my priests, uh, when I mentioned it to her. In fact, she's now the chaplain of the house, Margaret Gibbon. She was uh, she was the chaplain of the Marine Corps before she retired, and and Margaret's a very good friend. And I I mentioned to her one time, um, at a time of difficulty, um, that I was the eternal optimist, but I was struggling. And she said, "Well, you know, some people refer to as a as an eternal optimist as a person of faith." And I said, "Okay, I guess I'm a person of faith." So, um, it's it's seeing the planet from that vantage point and. Um, and in all its grandeur and, and understanding how insignificant we are as human beings uh, in God's you know, creation, I was overwhelmed but incredibly strengthened in my faith. It must have been tremendously satisfying for you to be appointed NASA Administrator
0: in 2009, considering your background. How validating was
1: that appointment? I am a person who suffers from the imposter syndrome. If you've ever heard of it, and um, I had I had felt the same way about other kinds of when I was selected to be a, a general, I felt I could I could do the job, but I was wondering why me. Um, there's a gazillion other people who could do this thing, and and I remember when I first time I when I became a commanding general of of the largest Marine Corps aircraft wing, the largest aircraft wing in the world. Uh, I said, "Why me?" and and I went off and, and enjoyed it and did a pretty good job. And so, when named to be the NASS administrator, I felt I could I could do the president and the nation a pretty good job. But I still said, "Why me?" So, I was overwhelmed and excited by the faith that the president had shown in me and and that the the Senate the Congress had also shown by confirming me. So, uh, but the thing was, I I remembered a couple of things my mom and dad had taught me and that I had learned at the Naval Academy when I first came in the Marine Corps and. Things like uh, listen to the gunny and the and the chief, which means you've got experienced people who have spent their lives doing what you're doing, uh, have much more experience than you, even though they may not rank as high as you are. So listen to them. Mom. And then my mom and dad said, um, you know, uh, just um, always take care of your people, and and they'll take care of you. So. So with those those couple of lessons learned from my mom and dad in the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps uh, I went into the job and and struggled the first couple of years but then did pretty well I think I think I think history will say but I, I you know it's too early to tell what excited you about the job and what frustrated you Oh the thing that excited me was just just being be part of America's space program and and uh, having an opportunity to interact with people around the world with the 120 nations that we had as partners in the 800 plus international agreements that we had. And the most frustrating thing was not being able to bring the two ends of Pennsylvania Avenue together better to to get Congress and the office of the president to work more collaboratively in in promoting America's space program. That was extremely frustrating. Do you think there's life out there? I do. Uh, You mean elsewhere in the universe? I do, but I don't have any evidence of it. So. But I do believe that there is life elsewhere in the universe, and I keep—I have no evidence, but I keep every time I get something back from curiosity or perseverance, particularly the last—you uh, know—the last samples that Perseverance cored out and put into its processor that says um, that there is potentially evidence that there was micro, microbial life on Mars at one time. That's all we want to see. I mean, any, any evidence that there was life there, that's, that's good enough.
0: How does your story reflect the American experience?
1: I don't know that it reflects a story about America as much as it does about humanity. Um, you know, like I, uh, I, I've come to call myself an earthling. Um, and so I think my story reflects what earthlings can do when given an opportunity and when they they believe in themselves and people around them and they trust other people and try to try to facilitate the success of others over themselves. Um, that, that puts us all in pretty good shape.
0: Thanks to Lane McGiboney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life and audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American achiever.